You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hi, um, my name is Rosie Miller, um, and my husband Luke and I have been going to Free City Church for about three and a half years now. And we have a two-year-old, Joel, and a 10-month-old, Levi. And we are in the Davis Miller City Group that meets on Thursday evenings. Um, And this Thursday, we're meeting at Ryan and Cassie Davis's house for some chili and to discuss today's sermon, and we would love to have you guys join us. So if you aren't in a city group yet, come find me after church, or you can find out more information about us on the realm. You can also find me serving in our kids' ministry um, in the baby's room, in the two to four um, rooms where um, our most important church members um, gather each Sunday and worship together. Um, So today I get the honor of reading our church text, which can be found in Matthew 11, 25 through 30. And this can be found on page 766 in the Bibles located under your seat. Again, that's Matthew 11, 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Please pray with me. God, we just thank you for being here this morning, um, for being present um, in this building, and for just bringing every person here um, who's here today. And we just pray for the sermon today, Lord, that um, you would open up our hearts to uh, just hear from you, um, and that you would uh, just use these verses to change us. Um, And we just pray, God, for this school, um, for Liberty Memorial um, Middle School, and um, that you would just encounter um, anybody who comes into this space, Lord, whether it be students, teachers, administration, parents, um, that you um, would just reveal yourself and um, that you would just use this church, Lord, to glorify you. and continue to save the lost. Uh, we love you so much, God, and um, just thank you for, for today. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew 11, as Rosie just read. And if you don't, the words will be on the screen. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Ethan, one of the pastors here. And this is, uh, you know, Casey's mentioned this every week, the last few weeks, and then we experience it on the stage, but it is, it's actually terrible. Like... <laughs> 
So if, if we start wearing, like, if whoever's preaching starts wearing a ball cap, that's why. It's not a fashion statement. Could be both, I guess. But hey, my name's Ethan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and, and, um, and it's good to be opening God's Word with, with you today. Uh, if you're here for, um, to witness a baptism, and what a fun time, we hope that uh, as you hear the Word, as you just sang the Word, that you would also hear the testimony of what Jesus does in the lives of his people, how he uses his people, the church, to transform his lives, and, uh, and that we'd actually see a visual representation of those who come to trust in Jesus and, and are put to death in the flesh and are given life in Christ. And so, man, what a fun time to gather this morning together. It's good to, to gather in, on the Lord's day in the Lord's house. This is the Lord's house. Um, we've, and it's been so good to pray uh, regularly uh, each week whenever we read the sermon text for the school. And we ask that actually you would pray for Central even more than just Rosie or whoever's reading the sermon text does. Uh, because what we say today, and we say, Holy Spirit, would you fill the halls? Um, there's no end to those prayers, right? So we want to see um, God's Spirit move throughout. Uh, and, and we're the people, the church, who God has specifically chosen to share the gospel with the world. And uh, so as we're here, um, that you'd pray for opportunities to even speak with people, to hear, um, and that we might actually impart uh, the good news that we're going to preach about today, um, that we can come to Jesus and find rest in him. Last week, we stepped into a new sermon series, um, one that we're calling Jesus, Joy, and Sinners. It's a series where really we're looking at, at primarily the heart of Jesus Christ. He's the focus. And to see him rightly, we've got to realize who we are, that we're sinners. We're those in need, those trying and striving to be better, to do better, looking for joy and satisfaction in life. And as we come face to face with who we are and what we're looking for, as we begin to kind of understand that which we're looking for, our hope and prayer is that the spirit of the living God might shine upon Jesus and we would see him more clearly, that we would together behold him and that we would see him for who he really is, that we would realize he's the only one able to satisfy our longings. And in seeing him, we want to see his very heart. He's not domineering. He doesn't shame us. He actually liberates us. He frees us to full, true living by his faithful service to us, namely through his cross and his resurrection. So if you're prone to, when you think of God or Jesus, if you think of him kind of arms crossed, frown on his face and foot tapping, and we hope that you would see that if the script is actually flipped from that, he doesn't have a frown, but rather he provides for you a crown and he has a big grin, a big smile on his face as he welcomes you to him. He actually delights in you, and he invites you to himself. Last Sunday, we looked at Matthew 14. Um, we saw that Jesus, in, in hearing the news of John the Baptist's death, he actually attempted to withdraw. This is a thing we see a lot of times in the scripture, where Jesus tries to get away to a desolate place. How does that normally work out for Jesus? Is he able to get away? No, because he's Jesus, and people see what he does, right? They see how crazy, miraculous he is. And so he's trying to get away, and a great crowd follows him out of the town. 
And in the account, Matthew, in writing, zeroes in on Jesus, telling us that Jesus, while he's trying to withdraw, he's trying to kind of restore, have time with his father, he doesn't just get stuck in himself, but he saw a great crowd that had come after him. And he doesn't just stop there, but he had compassion on them, and he moved toward them. He healed the sick. We see that in Matthew 14, 14. We see this miracle then unfold, right? A measly like five loaves of bread, two fish. They're put into a basket, and at some point this basket seems to turn into like a magician's hat, right? Jesus prays and asks God to bless it, and then it just turns into this limitless supply, feeding some 5,000 people. And here's what it says about those people. They ate, and they were what? Do you remember? What? Satisfied. And that's precisely what Jesus does. But it's not just what he does, it's who he is. He is the satisfier. His supplying of needs is an overflow of who he is. It was the, we saw last week, the compassion of Jesus that propelled him toward the crowds. He saw them, he had compassion on them, he healed them, he met their needs, he satisfied them. And here's the thing. Just as Jesus looked at the great crowds and he saw them, had compassion on them, the same is true for you today. I don't know where you are or what kind of week you've had. I don't know what, regret, what regrets you possibly walk into this place with. I don't know if you've brought in like a purse-sized thing of baggage or you've got, you know, the camping trip, having to buckle it, strap the seatbelt. Maybe have a roller bag behind you. I don't know what you come in with, but I want you to hear this, that Jesus has compassion for you. He sees you. Jesus, the, the very image of God, as Colossians 1 tells us, the firstborn of all creation, the one for whom and by whom all things were created, he sees you. He's the one who holds everything together, every atomic structure in existence with the very breath of his words. He sees you. He sits high. His eyes are low. He sees you this morning. That's absolutely insane, right? And so I want us to, as we look at Jesus, I want us to really grasp the beauty of this, that Jesus has compassion for us, that his eyes are on us, his heart is for us. And so let me pray and, and ask God to empower his word, to take this news and put it into our hearts that we'd receive it this morning. And so just as Jesus gives an invitation, I, I want to give you an invitation. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be weird. It can be weird. But I'd rather you not take it as weird. I'd rather we realize who it is that's offering us this and we just take him at his word. Does anyone feel weary in the room this morning? Like, just tired. When you hear these words, come to me, you'll find rest. Maybe you just didn't get good sleep, but maybe the season is like, I'm dying. Let's see, like, just a show of hands. Anyone? Okay, I can't see well, but I can see that, right? <laughs> so here's what I want you to do. I'm just going to pray. I'm not going to pray any kind of special words. I'd love for you, though, if you're comfortable with it, to just hold your hands out as if you were going to receive something. And I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would would empower you, open you to hear his word this morning, um, and that, that it'd be fruitful and helpful, and if anything's not, that that'd just fall away, but that we'd receive Jesus this morning. Is that good? Pray for us.
Father, we ask that you would move in this place. Lord, those who confess with their mouths and even a raising of hands, would you, would you let them know that you have great compassion on them, that you see them and you care for them? Lord, wherever individuals are coming from, with whatever heavy burdens they bring into this place, Lord, would, would you help us see that we don't have to clean those things up, we don't have to get ourselves right and then come to you, but Jesus, you just offer us, hey, come to me, and I'll give you rest. So Jesus, would you provide that this morning? As we look at your word, as we're gathered with the saints, Holy Spirit, would you take burdens and lift them, Lord, where there's confusion of identity and where that's actually found, would you speak to us? a good word, that we're yours if we trust in Christ. So lift our burdens this morning, Jesus. Do what you do. Amen. Well, here's where we're going today. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And so the main idea that we're going to unpack today is this, that God reveals himself to those who realize their desperate need for him. We could emphasize this a little bit. We could say that God loves to reveal himself to those who realize their desperate need for him. And then we're just going to go kind of three questions to, to just try to nail that thing. You know, if we've got a hammer, we're just going to hit it three times. We're going to say, to whom does God reveal himself? How does God reveal himself? And then finally, what's he like? And you probably already have a pretty good idea of all these, but we're just going to go through it. So look at verse 25 if you have your Bibles. If not, it'll be on the screen. So we answer the question, to whom does God reveal himself? Verse 25, Matthew 11, it says this, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. So it starts by saying, at that time. What time? So we kind of need to jump back. Look what precedes this. So immediately we look back at the text before us, the previous account, and what's happening. Matthew 20 through verses 24, if we look back, we see that Jesus begins this prayer, but it follows after he's denounced cities where he's performed most of his miracles. The Galilean cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, and then later named in verse 23, we see Capernaum. They were condemned because of how they responded to Jesus, or precisely how they did not respond to Jesus. They were amazed by what they saw. Perhaps they saw you know, him kind of being the busker of sorts, the miracle worker. It's, it's pretty drawing, right? But they didn't heed his call. When we look at Matthew 4, we see that Jesus comes out of the wilderness, he begins his ministry, and he says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus makes this comparison. And if you have your Bible, if you just look right up above, in verse 21 of Matthew 11, it says this, in the second half of it, it says, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloths and ashes. And so we're kind of like, man, what happened in Tyre and Sidon? What were those people like? Well, if you have your Bible, this is a helpful thing. Sometimes when we're preaching, we'll, we'll pull uh, other scriptures out of the text. 
And sometimes we'll talk about this later, and, and you're kind of like, man, where did we get this? Here's a really helpful way to read your Bible. If you have a reference Bible, oftentimes there's a note here at the bottom, and it might have a little letter or something. And you can find that letter, and then it'll reference you elsewhere in the Scripture, and we can allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and we can actually read the Bible and interpret it the way it is. And so if you look at this, I didn't pull this out of a hat. This is simply the bottom of your page. Jump back to Ezekiel 28. 28 verses 2 and 8. These are on the screen. It says this. This is what Tyre's like. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, says the Lord God. Here's what God says. Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you're but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like a God, like the heart of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. I almost get this of like, it's kind of sarcastic. Sure, you're wiser than Daniel. We get your wisdom. No secrets hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made yourself a wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver in your treasuries. And by your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth. And your heart has become proud in your wealth. It's this picture of self-sufficient, self-made. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like a God, therefore behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas." Because of their high view of self, because they deem themselves a God because of pride, because of an inability to behold God as God, they're judged. Surely we understand the reproach of Tyre, right? When we read this, we see, yeah, that makes sense. But Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty two says, hey, you guys remember Tyre? You remember Sidon? Well, it's going to be more bearable for them on the day of judgment than for you. And then he turns to Capernaum. And he says, in, in Capernaum, like, you guys think you're doing pretty good, right? You think you're going to be exalted up to heaven? No. You're going to be thrust down to Hades. And what's crazy here is that in Capernaum, Jesus, he did more miracles in that place than in any other place in his ministry. It was in Capernaum that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. There he gave sight to the blind, he healed demon-possessed, he healed paralytics, he restored a man's withered hand, he brought the dead to life. In Capernaum, it was there that he proclaimed, he's the bread of life, in John 6. And there he let them in on the news that everyone who looks upon him, upon the Son, believes in him, will have eternal life. But when they heard him say this, the people grumbled. They said, man, I don't know. This is Jesus. This is Joseph's boy. Like, we, we know his mom and dad. They saw miracles with their own eyes, but they ignored Jesus' message. You see what he's saying? As we look at Ezekiel, there's a clear condemnation from God to a self-declared Godship by those entire but in Capernaum, it's their indifference that damns them. 
indifference because they actually know a bit more, right? What might be said of us today? Brothers and sisters, we, we have the Bible, the Word of God. So where in Capernaum they, they saw these things come unfolded, you have the sufficiency of the Scriptures to know Jesus. The Bible points to him and him alone. If we made a list of the things done in Capernaum, it would be long, but the list that we've witnessed is some, depending upon font size, 1,000, 2,000 words, 2,000 pages, I'm sorry. Are we indifferent to Jesus? Or do we see him for who he really is? Do we see him as just a miracle vendor who has some interesting rhetoric at times? And how do we respond to him? Do maybe we hear him, but we know a better way for ourselves? Well, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us that God does not reveal himself to the proud, to those who make themselves gods, or those who are perhaps indifferent to him. So to whom does God reveal himself? Look again at verse 25. That time... Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now we're given a, a contrast that at first mention, it seems to say that the Father only reveals himself to little kids. But the meaning is deeper than that. It's not simply between the intelligent and the dumb or, or adults and children. So we, we know the distinction because of looking back at the previous texts, previous verses. What's being communicated here is a distinction between those who are self-sufficient and deem themselves wise and those who are dependent and willing to receive. Think about kids and their willingness to learn. My kids, like, there are plenty of times that we'll joke about them like, ah, I don't need your help, I'm fine. <laughs> but for the most of their lives, they're like, would you help me with this? Mom, would you help me? Would you do this? Right now, our kids, uh, we discovered this summer my Super Nintendo from when I was a kid. And uh, we've got a bunch of games. And, and so while we, well, we have a handful of games, all they're playing is Mario, Donkey Kong, which is good. Those are, those are big-time games, right? My son, his name's Isaac. We call him Ike. He... Uh, he, you could probably count on one hand how many times he's touched the controller. But he is constantly, constantly, constantly nagging, not me, more so his mom, because she's the expert at Mario. Mom, come play Mario. I need your help. We need to beat this level. Will you please do it? Will you watch? Can we watch you? You know, it's, it's just this, like, incessant thing. And we're like, dude, you're, you realize you could play this game. But he just wants to, Mom, come help me. Come help. Come help. He, he knows that he can't do this on his own, so he... Come on, Mom, will you do it? Come in the basement, let's go. And so there's this differentiation of, of those who know their way, who are wise and understanding, and then those of children who are dependent, who have need. How might you inventory yourself? Do you completely disregard Jesus? Or, or maybe you readily believe the works of Christ, the things that he's done, but, but pass and become indifferent when it comes to recognizing his lordship over all things. Perhaps you fit the description of verse 25, and I hope that's true of us, that we're actually dependent upon him. I hope that last description characterizes us as a people 
However, if it hasn't been characteristically true till this moment, it's not too late. Even now, even as you sit in this place, Jesus Christ himself continues to will your being into existence. And so we can continue to disregard him and exalt ourselves as self-made or indifferent people. Or we can become a dependent people who realize our givenness. Does that make sense? So God reveals himself to those who have need, to those who dare to repent of their self-sufficiency or their indifference and admit their destitution. Look back at, at verse 26. It says, yes, Father, for this was your gracious will. And in the Christian standard translation of this, it says, for this was your good pleasure. It was hidden from those who have no need for it, revealed to those who are dependent. And it was God's good pleasure to reveal himself. He loves to reveal himself to those who are desperately in need of him. So to whom does God reveal himself? We see that. And now how does God reveal himself? Look at verse 27. Jesus here is still speaking. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The main thing I want to highlight, we could unpack this hugely, but the main thing I want us to see here is that God is decisive to give all authority over to Jesus. We need to grasp the enormity of this statement. A few things that we can extrapolate from this, from verse 27, are this. Jesus has authority over what? The text says it. What's it say? How's that verse start? All things. Literally everything. Another way to say this is Jesus is Lord. Yeah? Two, only he really knows God. Right? He's God's son, calling God his father. Only he really knows God. Three, God cannot be known except through knowing the Son, through Jesus. And then finally, kind of a, a B point of that is we cannot know God unless Christ chooses to reveal him to us. This is the type of language that would be getting Jesus censored or canceled, whatever choosing you have, right? On the Twitter sphere, he would have a deactivated account and I don't mean that in tongue-in-cheek to you know exactly what I'm talking about. I, don't, I really don't mean that to the sake of uh, famous names that, you, that come to mind when I say that. It, it, there are tons of people in, in the past year, in the past five years, decade, or millennia, but none of these people ever, no good ideology or bad ideology, ever, ever, ever hold a candle to Jesus Christ. Right? Yeah. So Jesus is exclusive. He makes this huge claim. And maybe one just side point is, as I'm just thinking about the exclusivity of Christ. One thing I just want us to think about, we're not going to unpack this. We should unpack this in an armchair a lot. Uh, while Jesus is extremely exclusive of who he is, once you're in Christ, there's no exclusivity in Christ. Does that make sense? So like, well, I'm a Christian who chooses to do this, and you're a Christian who chooses to do that. No. 
So let's like just die with that. Jesus is Lord of all. You're in him. We can unpack that another time. Jesus makes an exclusive claim this morning. So Jesus in verse 27 makes the most exclusive, extravagant claim. A claim that matters and it directs what we do with everything else that he's just said or will ever say. The question of who Jesus is is the absolute central question to the Christian faith, right? Every other question is periphery. Yes, questions of what he calls us to are questions that for sure matter. But before you do, you must decide the who. And so who is Jesus? Jesus absolutely has things to say. He has stuff to say about your identity, about your sexuality, about your sex ethic, about what you do with your finances, about how you engage with or disengage with the government, about how you parent, about what you do with your singleness, how you love your spouse, how you use your time. He's Lord over all of these things. But the only reasonable way forward to follow any of his directives is to understand first who he is. If we just take the direct claim from this text, we see the things I've mentioned, but when we look at other parts of Scripture, we can unpack this even more of who Jesus is. I mentioned this at the beginning, Colossians 1. Paul, the apostle, writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we see that the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has also shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And how does this come about? The face of Jesus Christ. And then we have John 1. It says, And the Word became flesh. It dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, we see this. This unlocks this picture. No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, but he, Jesus, has made him known. Even Jesus' disciples questioned and wrestled with who Jesus is. In John 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So if we look at the scriptures, if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we see God himself. And if we watch Jesus, we don't see a God uninvolved or ambivalent. So we established last week, if when we behold Jesus, we see the compassionate heart of God. And as we've established in verse 27, compassionate heart of God, the one with all authority, in seeing him, we see God. So how does God reveal himself? Through his son, Jesus Christ. And he is Lord of all. And what's wild in this text is we see that Jesus builds this like huge fortress of a barrier to get to him in verse 27. It's clearly impenetrable. And if we stop there, the text actually might feel pretty hopeless, right? Well, good luck getting to it. 
But then we see the one who holds the keys to the kingdom, who has all authority, utter perhaps the sweetest words, the most necessary for our predicament words. He has, only he has the keys. And what's he say? He unlocks the door and he says, come to me. An invitation from the very God who has complete authority, Jesus Christ. He says, come to me. And so it's, do you know Jesus? It's here that we see God's delight in revealing himself to those who understand their deepest, desperate need for him. He reveals himself to those who say, I'm needy. And then he reveals himself through his son, Jesus. But what's he like? Look at verse 28. It says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's two things to me that initially stand out as prerequisites to receive this. First is come to me. Take Jesus at his word. And two, who the offer is for. All those who, are, who labor and are heavy laden. So there's a need to be willing to admit your need. We established this earlier. It's not a call to the wise and understanding, not a call to the indifferent or the proud. It's a welcome to those who realize their desperate neediness. It's Christ as if he's, you know, got the porch light on in the darkest night. An invitation for the bruised, the battered, the self-inflicted. But not just for those who are bodily wearied. This is more than just the external. It's for individuals whose very souls are wasting away. Those who have been eroded by the eternal murmur of reproach from those outside, the condemning words that are said, but also a self-reproach, a constant nagging of the soul that says, you're not good enough. You're not able to be loved. You're not worth it. The invitation of Jesus comes to those who can be honest with the reality of their need. And to those who come, Jesus promises rest. But his rest is, is probably a bit different than how we usually naturally imagine rest. Here's what I mean. I don't, I don't know about you, but when I think of rest, I think about a bunch of things. Here's a few things. I think about maybe not setting an alarm, right? You just get to sleep longer. Another thing might be uh, a good meal after a long day, or perhaps waking up in a, in a tent to the crisp fall air, right? You get to walk outside, gaze at God's beauty and snow-capped mountains with a cup of coffee in your hand, your soulmate, right? Or by yourself, however you, I know that a lot of us are self-rest self people. While that might be desirable pictures, I think another way for us to think of rest is, is maybe also a week where we don't have to talk to anyone, where we don't have to respond to any text messages, phone calls, emails, not having anything demanded of us, simply being responsible to or for no one. What I'm trying to say is I think that's, at least for me, my natural way of thinking about rest would more aptly be defined as escape. An ability to cut everything loose and just think about self and chill, right? Freedom from 
Fill in the blank. The problem is the rest I just described sees self as sufficient to heal. Self as sufficient to revive or restore. And that self-sufficient view seems to better fit in line with verse 25 as wise and understanding as opposed to the dependent child. To those who are wearied, who labor, who are heavy laden, Jesus says, come to me and you'll find rest from me. And it's here where we see what he's like. In verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the most direct way, Jesus tells us what he's like. He's gentle and lowly in heart. To understand his heart this way, it's kind of perplexing. He gives us an image, an image of a yoke, which honestly is a bit confounding when we think about what he's saying. Jesus, who's gentle and lowly in heart, he says, are you worn out, tired? I'll give you rest. And then he says, here, take this upon you. That seems like I'm trying to get burdens off me, right? Seems weird. We most often think of a yoke, if you're familiar with what a yoke is. A yoke is an instrument that's put on the shoulders of of an animal. We'll just say an ox. Um, Perhaps to pull a plow. The yoke not only straps the beast to a laborious tool, but it also puts the, the animal under the authority of the master. And at times that that yoke hitches an ox to another ox. It's not exactly a great picture of rest, in my opinion, unless we consider the meaning more deeply. If we were to flip forward into Matthew chapter 23, we could understand a bit more about the nature of a yoke. Jesus is speaking to a people, a people who, depicted in Matthew 23, are this. The scribes and Pharisees were tying up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and laying them on the people's shoulders. But the scribes and Pharisees, they were not willing to move them with their finger. Jesus understood the people he was speaking to weighed down by laws, by rules and regulations of the leaders of the day, unable to stand up under the demands that were placed upon him. The people were burdened because They had failed over and over and over to keep the law. And as they failed, the leaders piled on more. Their burden grew heavier and it was crushing them. They could see no way out. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. But here's also who Jesus is. As the laws weighed down on them, Jesus in Matthew 5 says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill, to satisfy them. In providing his own yoke, Jesus lifts the burden of the law because he himself is the fulfillment of the law. Does that make sense? He doesn't provide a way of escape. He doesn't cut it or do away with the law. He satisfies the law and satisfies those who receive his yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you. Receive from me. Receive my benefits. Find your rest in me. 
He says, I'm, it's going to be a little bit different than maybe you expected. You see, I'm not in the business of escapism. I'm not in that business because I've created everything. I have authority over it all. I'm the Lord of all. Everything is subject to me. And now that you're under from the weight of the law, now that I've lifted your burden, I'm not done. I want to reorient your life. Learn from me, he says. Once you were trapped in your need, unable to see past yourself, learn from me. Let me reveal my heart to you. Watch me. Trust me. Come under my authority where you belong. Be my disciple. You won't have to do it alone. I'm with you. Learn from me. Where do you find yourself today? Like, what kind of rest are you longing for? When you hear that, Jesus says, come to me, you'll find rest. What do you think of when you hear that word or read that word? Or maybe you've read it a million times. Maybe you've heard it for the first time today. Are you looking for some form of autonomy? Is rest to you financial stability or early retirement? Perpetually trying to get to where you want to be? Is it found in a significant other or if only you could find a significant other? Is it in your child or your children or your accomplishments? Or how many of you are, are operating from an overloaded schedule? Checking box after box after box of who you've met with this week and how impressively you've been juggling so much for so long. If so, how's that working out? I bet it feels like you're pouring from an empty cup. This is a statement that I've heard a handful of people say lately. An empty cup, an adage that I'm not real sure how it lands on us because what if perhaps we don't have a cup to pour from? What if the picture of the cup is an inappropriate picture for you? What if a cup has actually been taken from you? What if Jesus drank the cup that you've been envisioning? And what if instead of pouring out and needing a cup to be filled, what if you're more like a tree pictured in Psalm 1? What if you're more like the tree that's planted by the living stream, nourished by an everlasting stream? Perhaps where seasons there doesn't seem to be fruit on your branches, but your leaves, they don't ever wither because you don't sustain yourself, you're sustained by another. Brothers and sisters, this is precisely what the yoke of Jesus provides for us. When you receive Jesus' invitation, take my yoke, you're freed. You're free, but you're yoked. Not free for a tunnel vision of selfish desires or to just do whatever you want, but you're freed to actually live a life of flourishing because the one that you're yoked to, he's not domineering. He's not oppressive to those who come to him. He's gentle and lowly in heart. And Mark 10.45 also tells us that he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You're yoked. And when you're yoked, you receive salvation in Christ, but you also become his disciple. You learn from him. 
You look to him. You live with the people of God. You learn from Jesus, and we do this together as a people. We read this for the assurance today. We were once not a people, but now we're a people, one body, the church. And it's only in Jesus that we will find true rest. It's only under his authority that we get out under from the soul-crushing weight of burdens, those placed on us by others and those held by ourselves. Instead of escape as an avenue to rest, Jesus grants us his yoke. Instead of running ourselves ragged with the world in our hands, we receive the yoke of Jesus. And the yoke of Jesus has something to do with learning from him. It doesn't come from meticulously striving to follow all the laws, regulations placed on you that you could never possibly attain on your own. Rest comes from reorientation. Seeing Jesus rightly from knowing him, learning from him, trusting him as the one with all authority. Rest is found when we confess our desperate need for Jesus. And so Jesus says to us today, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. With a smile on his face, he says, yoke to me. With understanding in his eyeballs, he looks at you and he says, yoke to me. I'll forgive you when you fail me. I'll satisfy you when you embrace me. And this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus bears with your failures. He gently repeats instruction when necessary. He readily, he loves to assist the disciple. He restores the fallen. Jesus has shown us his heart as he took the entire yoke of our sin upon himself on the cross. And as he did so, he gave us his yoke of righteousness. And if you've received salvation, then you know the gentle and lowly heart of God because you know Jesus. A Christian is someone who realizes they have need. They're not wise or understanding. They're like little children. And here's the thing. Jesus loves to reveal himself to those who realize their desperate need for him. And if we flipped over to Ephesians 2, it's not on the screen, but just to think, Jesus yoked us to himself, gave us his yoke and upon the cross of righteousness. But in his resurrection, we also have this. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Think the picture of the yoke. Alive together with Christ. And it doesn't end there. He raised us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So you're not only yoked to Jesus at the cross, but in eternity, you've been raised with him if you're yoked to him. Take my yoke. You're already yoked to something. You live for something. You're mastered by something. May we be a people who receive the invitation of Jesus, who no longer are mastered by ourselves, our stuff, or our accomplishments, or longings to be where we want to be, May we be yoked to Jesus. May we be mastered by Jesus and Jesus 
alone. He's gentle and lowly heart. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. And each week we come to a time of communion in our services and when we do so, we're a people declaring our desperate need for Jesus. As those who've trusted in Jesus, who receive the yoke of Jesus, we literally come to him. You put a movement to it where you come and you tear off a piece of bread and you dip it in the wine and you receive the blessing that in this moment is a symbol and gives you a taste, a literal taste to couple with the great truth that Jesus alone gives you rest. So at Free City, the way we do communion here is we have some people who come up and they serve it in this moment and, and they'll tear off a piece of bread and this signifies the body of Jesus that was broken for you. And they'll dip it in the wine for you. If you come forward, there's only wine in these glasses. Know that. If you would rather not have wine or if you uh, have a gluten intolerance or celiac or something like that, at the back of the information table, we have little cups that are gluten-free cups that you could walk back there as people come forward and receive communion in that way. But as we do so, we remember what Jesus has done for us. We take him at his word, right? We take his invitation and we come today. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we hear your invitation. May we be a people who receive your invitation. Lord, where there's striving in our lives, would in you we actually find rest, a rest that's confounding to that which we've historically imagined. And even as we've heard of a different rest, we realize we need to be taught what this rest is like. So would you teach us? We want to be receptive to you, Jesus, and you alone. It's in your name. Amen. Hey, I want to read one more thing over you before you come. Would you just close your eyes, and I'm going to read this, and then we'll get to communion. Before we hit the pandemic, and it was, about, it was Thanksgiving of 2019, and I read this before, but then there was a book that turned me on to this translation, and, and my wife and I, uh, in a lot of ways, I think it was the sustaining power of God granted this translation uh, of this text to just be helpful to our hearts. And so sometimes we come to really familiar texts and we need to hear them in a different way. That's why we preach the word this way, but it's also helpful to like read the scriptures in a different way. So I want to just read this over you. I want you to hear it and then we'll come to communion. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. I think this is Jesus looking you in the face and saying this to you. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. If you're aware of your desperate need for Jesus, come today, come and receive communion.